Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers, a cultural historian of France with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture ever since we were at university, which now feels like many millennia ago. Yes, I think, and very in keeping with today's topic, I was uh, an East Asian homo erectus. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this week we're discussing sapiens, a brief history of humankind. Sadly, it's not called Erectuses, A Brief History of Humankind. Um, (laughs) Sapiens, 2011 bestseller by Yuval Noah Harari. The book was so hyped, it hardly needs any explanation here. Uh, Bill Gates loved it. Obama loved it. In fact, Bill Gates uh, loved it so much that he wrote a little review of it in which he describes commanding Melinda to take it with her on a, on a spring vacation. Bill and Melinda were joined by another 12 million couples potentially and that 12 million copies of this book have been sold. It's been translated into 60 languages uh, and I just have one gushing quote here from The Independent. Sapiens is a brave and bracing look at a species that is mostly in denial about the long road to now and the crossroads it is rapidly approaching. I mean, as this quote suggests, this is a book about the destiny of the species, uh, and the whole way it's written feels like a blockbuster. This is the kind of cosmic history of humanity writ large. Um, Zoe, can we start by saying a little bit about, you know, is this even a history book, really? What it's doing that's not like conventional history is obviously diving much further back into chronology. Um, So Harari wants to break down the gap between history and prehistory. He wants to break down the boundaries between history and biology. And one of the benefits of that is that as for me, as a modern historian, I am forced to think about the ancient origins of the species. And I have to say, I loved the early sections of the book. Um, I couldn't resist tittering when you talked about the Homo erectus, because it also made me think about so many of the other wonderful characters that you meet at the beginning. You know, the dwarf-like people who live on Flores Island, you know, these these Homo floriensis who never grew more than one meter tall, (laughs) or the amazing marsupial lions that used to roam in Australia, these lions with massive pouches. Uh, The weird and wonderful world of early prehistory is captured brilliantly. And for me, unfortunately, I thought the book became less and less compelling as it moved out of that sort of prehistory and prelude into more conventional history and what I, you know, um, stories that became more familiar. In terms of whether it counts as history or not, Zoe, I think it really seemed to me as much a book about the present and the future and is really writing the history of the past with one eye on present day questions and present day dilemmas. Um, It seemed as much interested in philosophy um, as it did in history. Did you um, think that it, this sort of mode of philosophical speculative history uh, was, was the kind of history that historians are writing now? Or did it remind you of kind of the sort of history that might belong in a funny way to an earlier era, despite his preoccupation with the future? I wonder how he'd feel about the comparison, but it did leave me thinking of Hegel, mad as that sounds, <laughs> uh, in that, that kind of you know, philosophy of history that ends with the idea of the end of history as man becoming godlike. 
Well, that's exactly the trajectory uh, that Harari sketches, that humans will attain such a mastery of the natural world and a form of knowledge, maybe even self-knowledge, absolute knowledge, that they then enter into some sort of higher realm of reality. Um, so it did remind me in a weird way of some of these 18th century philosophical speculative histories, but also more modern histories that have been inspired by them. Um, uh, a book that was discussed hugely 30, 40 years ago was Francis Fukuyama's The End of History, which again told a kind of grand narrative, that time entirely in human terms rather than prehistory, but again, a kind of grand teleology that leads to the present. And I just think that that way of operating, operating across these enormous timescales, using the kind of evidence that is as much drawn from present day science as it is from historical materials, that is alien to how most historians operate. Uh, very much so. And in fact, I think uh, we discussed when talking about this book earlier, <laughs> what you called the very thin use of evidence. I mean, if you look to the back of the book, which is what one instinct, you know, immediately does to see, okay, what is he basing these enormous, enormous historical claims on? Very few actual history books seem to have been consulted, although he does provide a, a website where he has his full range of sources. But it does sort of give one a slightly uneasy feeling that his wild generalizations are just that. And he kind of gives them free reign. So I think, you know, it makes, makes it a refreshing read for someone who's used to, to more footnoted content, uh, which, by the way, is not me, because I much prefer to <laughs> fiction than history, despite apparently being a historian. Um, but, but I think it's safe to say this is, this is not a book for specialists. And actually, it's kind of interesting to consider his position at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem as a so-called specialist in world history. And you sort of slightly wonder how mm. that fits, if that's not something of, a, of an oxymoron. Tom, what did you think of the tone of this book? Now, I found myself, I think, sort of both appreciating its very um, bright and clear style, but also hating it I, I think there was a there was a subtext of, of loathing um because i i you know i suppose <laughs> i appreciate style and this was a bit of a babyish infantilizing hectoring know-it-all style that's what i thought mm -hmm. um what did you think as a sort of sophisticated man of <laughs> man of the world historian being talked to <laughs> i think it was a book that was written to be quoted I mean, it felt like he spent a lot of time, he writes in a very kind of lean way and he loves the sort of short, pithy sentence, but it sometimes felt like the whole paragraph was just building to these final zingers. And he was so proud of these zingers. Um, and at the beginning you think, oh, that's provocative and you enjoy them. But as it goes on, I agree with you, Zoe, it just gets more and more glib. You know, it just gets more and more flashy and, you know, you feel that it's a bit phony. Um, the other thing I thought about the tone, which is interesting, is that he takes a kind of glee in, uh, in what Hegel, again, would call the cunning of history or the cunning of reason. Um, he loves the fact that, you know, sometimes history operates in quite kind of perverse, unexpected, unusual ways. Um, and sometimes that can be pleasurable, but he also sometimes takes a huge amount of relish in describing the cruelty uh, of our ancestors, the kind of weird accidents of fate, that there is something almost godlike in his own position, that he's watching the drama of humanity being played out below. And he writes with a certain nonchalance about some of the suffering and some of the cruelty and some of the weirdness that is the history of humanity, that he adopts this rather wry, again, sort of slightly bemused and slightly cruel position watching uh, this big drama playing out below. 
That's a very good point, actually, for the man who you know finishes his book by saying humans are terrible little gods uh, taking over, um, and he who seems to be quite anti-god. And I will quote that shortly. But um, you know, he he himself does take on a, a godlike tone. Struck by how at one point he sort of shovels in Hitler with someone else, which wasn't who wasn't nearly as bad as a sort of oh well, Hitler doodaloo, just part of the dumb dumb de dum everyday you know action of, of human history and there there is i think there's almost something disturbing in mm. that um in that lack of seriousness in a way but he only gets really serious uh towards the end when he starts more explicitly banging his his um his drum about ecology and environment but we can get to that later um tom did you what, what did you make of the emphasis that increasingly comes out um on futurology well, I think it's a, he stands in for a whole kind of brand of recent publishing. Um, you know, if you think on the left, the, the, the kind of interest in books about post-capitalism, thinking of the kind of Paul Mason book, um, you know, the, the kind of line between present day journalism and kind of mad science fiction has been completely kind of effaced. Uh, there were bits of the final passages of this book that felt like you were reading a script from Alex Garland, you know, the guy who's been writing Devs and Ex Machina, in that he imagines, you know, a world beyond the Homo sapien. You're imagining through cyborgs or through forms of genetic engineering, completely new forms of life. Um, and while those are kind of, you know, good things to think about in terms of what's going to happen to the category of human being as we enter the 21st century. Um, it's again built on the most sensationalist kind of journalism. Uh, you know, whereas at least at the beginning you felt he'd read a lot of other people's science books and just presented them in a slightly zippier way. By the time he's in his own kind of, you know, pro you know prognosis for the future, um, it is wild dystopian sci-fi stuff. Um, and it should be pointed out that the follow-on book from Sapiens, Homo Deus does nothing except talk about this idea of man becoming godlike and the kind of eclipse of the species. Um, so, I, so I think that that focus on the future has also led him to sort of twist the history of the past in some ways to fit this particular moment. Um, it has a kind of sense of trying to grab the reader by the lapels and say, we are at a turning point. We are at a threshold in the species history. And it's quite alarmist, I think. Yeah, and I think just to add to, to that futurology style, it's also extremely, as well as dystopian, extremely political. Um, mm. And he's, he's, he's putting in a radical, green, leftist, um, anti-humanist. Um, I personally hate futurology. I'm just going to put that out there. So that whole section of the book <laughs> hold me. I just thought, why do I care what you think about the future? If there's one thing that people get wrong, it's predictions of the future. Uh, the odd person gets the, the odd prediction right, but by and large, it's all wrong. It's like the economist always gets everything wrong, even in the next week. So this man should spend more time telling us what he knows about history um, in a coherent way and less about just wild speculation rooted in his own politics. The, the one thing I just um, pick up on there, Zoe, is I'm not sure whether it's a leftist vision, and we might come back to this, but this is also a book that, while is very worried about the environment, and I do think the kind of ecological, you know, disaster, uh, I mean, at one point he describes uh, Hopo sapiens as the deadliest species in the annals of biology, so he's very interested in, like, you know, human um, abuse of the natural world, human cruelty towards other animals, etc. Um, that there is a very strong environmentalist view here, but there's also a sense that capitalism was the only engine of development. 
Um, and he's quite dismissive of ideas about trying to organize society on, on different grounds, like capitalism and imperialism and, you know, big money and big guns. They're the things that make you a winner, I suppose. And so you could also read the book as a sort of celebration of power in some ways, oh, um, you rather than necessarily an egalitarian one. Oh, well, I disagree there because I think he's holding up capitalism and big guns in order to say that they're fonts of evil and have set sapiens and mankind on the wrong track. So, you know, just because he focuses on them, he's actually doing that in order to reject them. And it would be better if he paid attention to other problematic systems, perhaps. Uh, because in the end, you know, his, his, his big thing is that capitalism has just sparked, you know, it, it, the industrial agricultural complex, which makes so many animals miserable and wreaks environmental sort of havoc and so which leads me to my my next point which is just that one of the kind of here we're really getting into into deconstructing the hype i get that you know it was hype. <laughs> that's why i think it sh could have been hype but should be sort of slightly loathed as well and i was genuinely unsettled by what i saw as a deeply anti-humanist conviction here at the end it's it's a very bleak portrait but what i really objected to was as he kind of rattles on and on and on, he just builds up to these grand statements about how Sapiens has, has not achieved anything worth achieving. It's all been about power and greed and destruction. The, the, the way we should judge Sapiens is based on its degradation to the earth. And that becomes his entire assessment of human history. And he, he seems to be completely impervious to or uninterested in considering any intrinsic value to things like liberalism or the scientific revolution. It's all stitched into this kind of very negative perspective on, on what uh, sapiens can be said to have done in the, in the round. And that I found disturbing that so many people have sort of lapped this up and, and, and applauded it. When what he's really saying is that we should be uh, ashamed of ourselves and terrified of the future. And I think that last few lines of his book uh, really just make this clear. I mean, here he is finishing this whole account of, of our magnificent species, granted extremely flawed, but still magnificent, I think. And he says things like, worse still, humans seem to be more irresponsible than ever. Self-made gods with only the laws of physics to keep us company, we are accountable to no one. We are consequently wreaking havoc on our fellow animals and on the surrounding ecosystem, seeking little more than our own comfort and amusement, yet never finding satisfaction. Is there anything more dangerous than dissatisfied and irresponsible gods who don't know what they want? The end. Uh, I mean, he should speak for himself. I'm really not sure that I appreciate being called a self-made god who wreaks havoc on fellow animals. And he, you know, it's, it's, it, he has no appreciation for the corrections and, and, and dynamics and backlashes, the, the rise of vegetarianism, the rise of eco consciousness. I mean, this is all humans are a kind of a loose cannon on the way to destruction, a sort of entropic force full of stupid contradictions. And the other thing is that, you know, he does make us sound really stupid as a species that on one hand, we have the intelligence to work out things like fire and how to grow wheat and how to make steam. But on the other hand, we're just incredibly stupid in trying to pursue wheat, in, which ultimately makes us tied to livelihoods that make us miserable um, and, and the sort of allegiance to arbitrary systems and dangerous foolish myths that he only he can see through <laughs> Zoe is, is Zoe's in a rage, I'm in a rage. Being described I as a more self-made god 
I did get more and more balled up reading this. I was reading it on the beach in Italy, starting to kind of scroll ferociously with my pen and sort of like start snorting and, and snarling. One thing, so two things I'd say back to that, Zoe. There's a lot there to, to unpack. And um, all I would say is I think his view is probably slightly more dialectical, you know, and I, I would say another figure who is sort of ghosting some of these pages is Karl Marx, you know, especially in the sections where he writes about how money was invented and the fiction of money and so on. Um, but I think his view of progress is a little more dialectical in that while at the end he ends on this very shrill alarmist note, he also thinks that these kind of destructive processes like capitalism um, and empire and kind of, um, you know, the destruction of much of the natural world, that these were the only ways in which progress had been possible, that they put humanity on a path from which there was no turning back. Um, and that's why, you know, it's in a way, it's interesting how he frames the agricultural revolution, as you say, that, you know, actually this didn't lead to a significant improvement in most people's happiness. It didn't actually improve uh, most people's contentment. They had to work harder um, and their lives became much more difficult. And yet once they'd fallen into that trap, as he calls it, or that con, there's no way back. Um, and I think that thing about trap and con also speaks to what you just suggested and that he's very interested in how deluded humans are. You know, it comes back to that godlike view that all previous generations haven't really understood themselves, haven't really understood their own wants. Um, there's a nice quote. He says, uh, there is no way out of the imagined order. When we break down our prison walls and run towards freedom, we are in fact running into the more spacious exercise yard of a bigger prison. Like there's something kind of Foucauldian about this as well, um, of humans constantly being sort of trapped in devices of their own making, that there's a sort of tragic futility in our attempt to actually kind of truly free ourselves. Um, and so I, I think he's quite skeptical about our possibilities for emancipation, but he thinks that those destructive processes were the only things that have brought us to this kind of mm. godlike potentiality, mm. you know, that we have at the end of the system. Mm. Um, Zoe, can I ask just one other thing that comes off the back um, of what you were saying there about myth? Um, how do you think he kind of makes sense of what values, you know, or what matters then in human life? You know, what does he think seems to be kind of the sources of significance? for uh, homo sapiens and for individuals? I don't think he believes in significance in any <coughs> fixed way. Um, he, he says things, for instance, on things like right and wrong. These principles have no objective validity. So he's espousing pretty mm. bad moral relativism. What do you think about his, his sort of, what, you, you know, what you've called his indifference to, to value systems, his, his idea that religion is a catch-all kind of put down phrase that capitalism and liberalism and physics and buddhism are all sort of these silly religions that humans invent and nothing has any intrinsic value um i think the one thing that he believes isn't a myth or a religion is maths and physics i mean he does seem to think that they are um you know intrinsic uh, sources of knowledge, but they are nonetheless shaped by ideological agendas. But he does put everything else on the same level, you know, whether it be, um, you know, Buddhism, whether it be capitalism, as you say, whether it be liberalism, these are all treated as similar kinds of delusion. Another problem with his big vision of the modern world is that he thinks traditional sources of meaning have completely dried up, that people live in a world where they are inherently alienated from their families, uh, in which, you know, traditional religion is now meaningless compared to science. Uh, and I just don't think that that's a very good description of the modern world we live in. It feels like the crudest kind of version of modernization theory or a certain kind of crude sociology 
Um, you only have to look around and think that um, structures like the family are still hugely significant for how most people make sense of their, their place in the world. Um, on the subject of the resilience of traditional categories, what did you think of the way he was discussing gender, Zoe? Well, I thought gender was one of his strengths along with, to some degree, empire. So I think he, he quite cogently sort of said, well, patriarchy isn't based on anything remotely rational. There's absolutely no reason women couldn't lead armies, um, do things that didn't, you know, the only differences are matters of physical strength, but physical strength does not come into, you know, running companies, running organizations. Okay, we're not at the company's level in, in prehistory, but, um, but he basically goes through, it makes, I think, a very nice little put down of all the kind of strange myths and, and beliefs that sustain a system in which women are locked out of top positions, leadership positions, warrior positions. You know, why aren't women commanding submarines now? I mean, there's, there's no physical reason for it. There's no cognitive reason for it. So he, he does point to the strangeness of how someone in a, any society in the world, which had no means of communicating with each other, whether it be in, in ancient Aztec kingdoms or China, ancient <laughs> China, they all come up with a, with a system in which women are second class and, and patriarchy rules. And that leads him to an interesting perspective on patriarchy, which is that it's so irrational and strange and yet so universal that maybe there is something absolute about it, that there is something inherited or genetic about patriarchy, whereas with everything else, and this was your point, um, he's, he's all about we've created it, it's sort of entirely material, uh, but but patriarchy is one of those things which he thinks is so irrational and strange that it must be some must be stitched in almost like a genetic miscoding the fact that it's so persistent. So I liked that. I don't know if I agree with this sort of oh it might be coded into us, but I think he's right that you know he 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 defamiliarizes it really effectively. Mm -hmm. He doesn't fall into the traps of saying, well women are just less good at problem solving and that explains it, or women just want to raise children and that explains it he doesn't fall into those those traps so he he, he illuminates the full strangeness hmm. um of of patriarchy really so i i was i thought that was good building on that i was impressed by his willingness to be politically incorrect i suppose so just as it's a surprise to find somebody suggesting that maybe there is something biological about patriarchy but trying not to sort of naturalize that, but actually just sort of posit it as a problem. And I also thought, as you suggested, Zoe, in the way that he writes about empire, I was both relieved, but it was also somewhat surprised of how admiring he was of empire in a way. That some of the, the negative bits of this book, I suppose, is that it can read like a celebration of who's got the biggest guns and who's most powerful. Um, but he does seem to recognize that empire is ubiquitous, that we need to get away from a kind of moralism in the way that we talk about empire. Um, and we need to see it as just, you know, one of the structures of governance that might actually be superior to many other forms of governance that have been tried out in history. Yeah, I really liked one quote he, he had, which was, all human cultures are at least in part the legacy of empires and imperial civilizations. And no academic or political surgery can cut out the imperial legacies without killing the patient. And I just thought that was so apt for now so apt for now when we're thinking about how history is taught and and everything you know whitewashing history removing statues um tom didn't you find that his history was a bit eurocentric um he spends a lot of time on you know empire science and capitalism as the kind of trio that fuels 
um, all the developments that have led to the modern world now, and that includes the whole world. I felt that that he was right to say mm. that the West won and to, to kind of put that down to an epistemological shift in the belief of ignorance needing explanations outside of the culture, um, fueling dis the desire to discover and be proved wrong, that you know, explanations can be improved and so on, versus maybe a more inward looking um, idea that, that answers are found within the culture or in a more closed system. But what did you make of that? You, you didn't think that was such a fair uh, history, did you? I felt it was maybe, you know, there was a danger that it did just become a kind of epic narrative of westernization. Um, and while I think he's right that, you know, it is Europe that has ultimately kind of shaped the majority of how the world lives and how the world thinks at the moment, that process is not some sort of steamroller, as I say, of kind of westernization and modernization. Um, and I think if you're going to make your key argument for the reason that why the West won, the other cultures were simply incurious, it would be nice to see some evidence that he'd read about the intellectual life or the scientific cultures in other parts of the world, you know, namely in China, and, you know, the rich traditions of science there. So it comes back to this thing about, is he really a historian? Because, you know, he makes these wild claims about, you know, the West's superior scientific spirit or addiction to exploration or whatever, um, but then doesn't really do, do anything bibliographically to make you believe that he's read the other side of the argument or that he's ever really done much reading outside of these rather triumphalist narratives um, about why the West won, even if that triumph is accompanied with a huge amount of suffering and he always is willing to show that kind of dark side of progress too um, which leads me Zoe to think uh, you know and to ask you the final question which I suppose is who is this book for and more importantly why the hype? This book is for people who are interested in, in the world in a general sense and all I've just the amount of people I know who've read it ranging from my parents to all kinds of friends and of all from all walks of, of professional life um, show that it just has enormous appeal because people really are interested in explanations. I think as a historian, a recent historian who's been introduced to the kind of history that's very focused and micro, there's probably a great appeal for these kind of giant broad brushstroke steps. And, and I also found it satisfying, especially in the beginning. I think that the hype comes down to the fact that we're always looking for ways to not just understand, but, but, but flagellate. I think he, he delivers a kind of double punch. On one hand, the kind of very satisfying grand narratives and grand explanations that saves you having to pour over loads of history books, just takes it up to you in one, several giant leaps. On the other hand, the, the self-recrimination and the self-flagellation that we also have such an appetite for now um, and why, why we're such bad sapiens, bad, bad sapiens, you know, look at what, <laughs> look at what we've done to the world. Um, and that just, that taps in massively to, to the way uh, all kinds of people, enlightened people in the West are, are looking at things. And, and I think, you know, I don't know, I think ecology and the environment seems to also be a big theme that would appeal to people and, and, and help create the hype. What do you think? I think this is history for CEOs. I think this is a sort of, as you say, there's a hunger to have, you know, the world's history put in one book, but it's also history with an eye on kind of policy um, and speaks to an almost David Attenborough sense of like, now is the moment, you know, our generation is at the crossroads. 
Um, and I can see why people like Mark Zuckerberg and others have felt fascinated by this book and flattered by it, because it again gives scientists the role now of being the architects of a whole new kind of history of humanity. Um, it reminds me of, a, I mean, a book that I think is much more sophisticated as history, but Neil Ferguson's book, um, The Square and the Tower, which was all about using the history of networks and networking to try and tell these kind of grand narratives of transformation. And so there is something about writing history books for people who are not trained as historians, but want to see why the present matters and you know, be able to kind of draw broader conclusions about the future. Um, I also think it's, you know, there's a market out there at the moment for these big evolutionary narratives. And it's exactly that kind of thing that I'm allergic to. Uh, looking back to the life of Neanderthals and biology to try and say something about the culture in which we now live. I'm very suspicious of putting biology and culture in the same sandwich. Um, but nonetheless, people want that kind of narrative and they want to believe that, you know, evolution in the DNA and so on will tell us something about how society is currently constructed. So I think methodologically, it's quite trendy to people, especially in an age of popularised science. Mm -hmm. uh, well, join us next time for uh, an analysis of Selling Sunset, the Netflix uh, series that I devoured against my better judgment in about one day and has sort of fried, <laughs> my, fried my brain from the inside out. I know I'm not the only one.